I don't know uh, how many of you know that uh, Pastor and Eric I, and I became a believers listening to the same sermon back in 1997 at a youth conference for high schoolers, uh, which was also in January, now 26 years ago. And I think it is that when any of us becomes a Christian, there's a, a whirlwind of experiences and emotions that can often come with that conversion. There's, there's something of an eye-opening reality, and mind-blowingly so, that, that even though you may have heard the gospel and have had some facts stored up in your mind, uh, when it's actualized in the heart by the Holy Spirit, it's as if everything uh, changes before your very eyes. Uh, one of our staff uh, members back in Hawaii just had cataract surgery, and I was asking him how he feels. And he said, it's like a whole new world. Every color seems to pop. Everything's so much brighter and clearer. I didn't realize that this is what things actually look like. And, and there's something of the same effect in the new birth. Uh, you understand things more clearly, the world and, and humanity and, and God and the human heart and, and why things are the way that they are. And and there's this new desire for life change, a uh, newfound understanding of, of the joy of repentance and sanctification. There's a love for people, uh, even the ones that have been historically more difficult for you to love, uh, because you actually love the Lord. And therefore, you want his word, and, and more than anything, you want to know him more and more. And, and then coming to worship then becomes a joy uh, rather than a chore. You like preaching. Uh, you like to sing the songs that hit you different, relationships you have, categories for people, they all begin to change, who doesn't know Jesus, who has to come to know him, and the things you used to live for and strive for become a little bit less important and consuming. I remember when I first became a believer, I felt this high, and I remember thinking, all I'm going to do is listen to praise music for the rest of my life. No more Tupac. And that feeling is because everything is so new so vibrant that it all seems to pop. But the majority of the Christian life is not lived in that initial 15 minutes of highs. The majority of the Christian life is lived after that high fades quite a bit. And time continues to go on, and you still got to go to work and study for what you got to study for. You still have to pay your bills and wash the dishes, etc., etc. and routine begins to set in. And excitement gives way to familiarity and repetition, and that initial zeal will either turn into a love that grows cold, or it will birth a different and a more mature kind of zeal of perseverance and trust and intentionally pressing into Jesus more and more, uh, even when you don't always feel like it. I think perhaps it is that one of the greatest trials to the faith and a big threat to holiness of life is simply time that we can drop our eyes and lower our chins and not fixate our minds on what it is that matters. And so we need to often consider our own souls and periodically examine ourselves uh, between Jesus' first advent and his sure coming second advent. And, and the hope of these next few sermons and passages is precisely that to kind of recalibrate and consider where we're at uh, from perhaps maybe where we have wandered from. And so at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. Verses 38 through 43 is our passage. Luke 
Before we look at this text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, by your grace and your kindness, we ask that you would please um, bring us close to you as we open your word. Would you free us from distraction? Would you captivate our attention? And that by the Holy Spirit, Lord, you would show us uh, the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ, which is better than anything. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This passage is about what is at the very heart of true discipleship and what is really at the core of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And this text is coming off of a string of texts contextually which do describe many facets of discipleship. At the end of chapter 9, there is a cost of following Jesus. The first half of chapter 10, there's a mission and a missional kind of lifestyle that Jesus wants his followers to embody, which is simple, uh, dependent, focused, because there is a great harvest of people who do not know him. Midway through chapter 10, we get a little peek behind the curtain, so to speak, at what is uh, in heaven, the joy of the Father and Son and Spirit. They somehow rejoice in the grace of our salvation which is being revealed to people who don't deserve it, that we can somehow derive joy from God's very own joy. At the end of chapter 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, we are reminded that as beautiful as the law can be, it actually really condemns every single one of us. And again, we're shown our great need of grace. Uh, Each of these passages shows to us a different facet of discipleship and, and brings us to see what following Jesus is like from a variety of angles. But it's in our text this evening that I think we get to the very heart of it, the core, the bare bones, the boiler room, so to speak, of what following Jesus is really about. And we have in this text two sisters, Mary and Martha, who can both teach us a great deal about this very topic. We read in verse 38, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. I want you to notice first how easy it is to be distracted from the very heart, the core, the essence of discipleship, and not even know it. And to lose our focus on what it is that matters most. Mary is at the Lord's feet taking in all that she can from Jesus. And Martha is distracted with much serving, even when that serving is for Jesus. Now, Martha, she often gets a bad rap here, and many commentators and preachers have uh, piled on the abuse over the years, using her as this easy target, as someone not to be like, undercutting her very character. But Martha, she is a very godly woman. She believes in Jesus. She loves him and is loved by him. Martha's very close to him, and it looks like she has this open-door policy with them that Jesus can come into her house whenever he wants to, and he knows that Martha is going to welcome him in. We're told in John 11 just how much love is shared between Jesus and Martha and her family. And when the majority of Jesus' superficial followers are scattering and beginning to run, when the going gets tougher, Martha, she's not doing that at this point. She's a godly woman. Martha's an excellent woman of great hospitality, which is one mark of godliness, Romans 12, 13, and 1 Peter 4, 9, and 10, and so on. And and especially in this day and age where preparations had to be done on the spot, it's not like you could make a phone call or send a text to let someone know you're coming over. 
and are about a couple hours away so you can thoughtfully give that person time to prepare the house and get ready for guests. There's no fast food pickup spots when you're in a jam. No, but as soon as Jesus enters into this village is as soon as Martha welcomes Jesus into her house and Jesus' entourage, all of his followers, and whoever else is with him. And what perhaps makes his hospitality even more gracious is that commentators like Matthew Henry also believe Martha is a widow, which is why this home is called her home, and there's no mention of a husband, which then makes this entertaining and feeding and providing even more noteworthy. For most widows in the first century were not known to be affluent. It's expensive to host. Those of you who host a lot know how quickly the size of the bill can become, and yet Martha doesn't seem to regard at all the cost. There's a special kind of worship here that wants to feed the hungry Christ and host our Lord and Savior, who somehow has less than the foxes do who have holes of their own and the birds of the air who have their own nests. In providing for Jesus out of her own potential poverty, With exuberance, excitement, and immediacy, we would be wrong to think that somehow Martha here is not a godly and excellent woman. And this is especially more so the case considering the time and being this near to Jerusalem. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, all of Judaism's head honchos, and even some of Rome's power people, they are all gunning for Jesus or about to be gunning for Jesus. And with that, there is always a risk involved in welcoming him into your home and being put on this watch list of sorts. Remember that Peter's going to get called out later because a little servant girl recognizes him. I think that guy hangs out with Jesus. I saw him with Jesus, and Peter's going to deny that famously three times before the rooster crows because he is utterly afraid of being associated with them. And while Jesus is preparing his followers through his teaching for exactly this kind of cost counting, Martha here, she still welcomes Jesus in with open arms and his people into her house without a thought to any kind of cost at all. Martha loves Jesus. And this is a lot of rigorous work and a lot of potential costs, and yet serving him is her high joy. I was watching a segment on uh, Honolulu's Little League team uh, this past year. They won the championship. They were away from the island. The kids skipped school for like three, four weeks. And the reporter was asking a group of the kids what they first did when they first got back. Long flight, you were across the country, tough travel. And I think like three out of the four kids responded, we went to Zippy's, we went to Zippy's, we went to Zippy's, and the other kid went to Kozo Sushi. They didn't have any local food. They hadn't even had rice for weeks, they all said, you know. And I really think Martha, she's looking at Jesus and seeing his weariness and the rigors of constant ministry and the pressure of it all showing upon his face, and therefore she's thoughtful to prepare something nice because she is cognizant of all that Jesus has been put through, the ministry, the preaching, the healing, the crowds, even the animosity and the rejection, and she wants with her all to prepare something nice for him. And so Martha here, she really wants to serve Jesus with all of her being. But even that... That is not the main thing, brothers and sisters. Serving Jesus is not primary. There must come before that something else. The main thing, the heart, the essence, the core of discipleship is personified here in Martha's sister, Mary. 
that as soon as she sees Jesus, she wants to receive everything she can from him. And as soon as he begins to open his mouth to say anything, Mary, with this eagerness, seems to forget everything else and is tunnel-visioned upon the Son of God that her greatest privilege in this moment is to listen with all of her being to what her Lord has for her, to treasure and to soak up everything that he's saying. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of this moment, says of Mary's mindset, I will worship, I will adore, and every word he utters shall be stored in my memory. She forgot the needs of both the master and his followers, for her faith saw the inner glory which dwelt within him, and she was so overpowered with reverence and so wrapped in devout wonder that she became oblivious of all outward things. It says, if every single syllable was a pearl on a necklace, there's this reverence, this devout wonder at the person and work and words of Jesus that has to be central before anything else. There's a fixation here upon him and everything that is coming out of his mouth to receive something from him, to get something from him before we give anything back to him. And this is the main thing, Pillar Baptist Church. And it's what's at the very heart of discipleship, not first to serve Jesus, but to be served by him, to sit in this posture at his feet, as it were, to recognize his authority that every word out of his mouth is what it is that sustains me. And this is something that in Mary that even Jesus himself modeled within his own life, that when he was starving in the wilderness and fasting for for weeks, being assaulted by the devil for 40 days, and with the choice before him in that moment between bread and hunger, Jesus says there so succinctly in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is something more sustaining about God's word than even a loaf of bread to the famished. And this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, way back when, which tells us that this has been the case for quite some time, that listening to what God has to say and eating it is almost everything. The word of God received into our hearts is really the best way to commune with God and that our greatest needs and sustenance and the satisfaction that our souls require and long for is not to be found in some kind of meal and not to be found in what I can do for him, but to be found by eating up everything that proceeds out of God's mouth. And these are not the only places where we see this. In John six sixty eight, Jesus had just preached to the crowds a tough message and they didn't like it. Their hearts did not agree with it, and and many, because they didn't like it, they were leaving him. And Jesus turns there to Peter and says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Do you understand how important it is? to sit at the feet of our Lord and Savior and to drink in his teaching and to chew upon his word that what Jesus says and what he thinks and what he preaches and what he teaches is absolutely everything. And this is why the preaching of the word is so important in the churches of Christ. 
there's this phenomenon which can occur in every pulpit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes there, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. There is this phenomenon that Christ can preach to his people even through the unclean lips of the human preacher. It's not just teaching and exposition and life application and style and humor and presentation and making sure you hit all of those notes in the technical practice of communication. No, but in some way, the people of Jesus, through the preaching of the word, they actually hear the voice of Jesus himself. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul speaks to the church there. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. I mean, what is Paul talking about? At what point did Jesus ever come to Ephesus to preach peace to them? Jesus never set foot in their church. But here's that phenomenon again, that Jesus didn't, and yet he did. And that as Paul preached to them, it was Jesus preaching to them. That as he opened his mouth, Christ's voice was heard and his sheep know his voice. This is why so many times it is that you may feel Jesus himself tugging at your heart and by the Holy Spirit, it's convicting you of things that the preacher has no idea that's been going on in your life. That to the glory of the Father, this word is Jesus's voice himself, and you yourself are in the posture of Mary, sitting at his feet, as it were, taking in everything, tunnel-visioned, and entirely unaware of almost anything that is happening around you. I mean, who would ever want to miss out on those moments? I don't understand sometimes how you have to convince people to go to church to hear the word of Christ and to hear Christ himself so that you could watch little kids play sports instead. The entirety of creation, as we know it, has been created by the very voice of God, his word. The physical universe is a testament to how powerful it truly is because of the one who speaks it, and it can be just as powerful in the hearts of those who want to sit under it. Do you want to sit under Christ's word? That's a humbling thing as a pastor as well to preach his word through unclean lips. And it is a wicked thing as well for those who claim Christ who don't want to preach that word and who don't want to sit under uh, his word at his feet. Brothers and sisters, this is us. This is a checkpoint. Do we want that word? Do we want to receive everything that God has for us? And it seems here to be the air that Mary breathes, the food that she eats, the water she drinks. And this is at the very heart of what following Jesus is about. This is the essence of discipleship. You know, there's something crucial that we need to understand about following Jesus. And it's very simple. And yet it is also at the same time so often forgotten that Christianity is, again, first about being served by Christ rather than it is first serving Christ. And I think this is where so many of us who follow Jesus can so easily get things upside down, that we want to focus, uh, be more focused on what we give rather than what we get. 
Do you remember when Jesus is dressed as a servant and he begins to wash all of his disciples and their dirty feet and he's on hand and knee there like a slave scrubbing and cleaning all of their filth and then he comes to Peter and Peter's left everything to follow. He's pledged his life to Jesus, left his career, his fishing boats, his family, and he makes all the bold claims of devotion to him. Peter says to him in John 13, 8, you shall never wash my feet And what does Jesus say in response to you? He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And it is somehow the case that if we cannot allow Jesus to condescend and to take our filth into his hands, if our pride cannot allow that, that we put ourselves in the posture of being served by him, then how will our hearts ever take in the Son of God hanging upon the cross as a criminal so that he might wash us clean by his very own shed blood? Anyone who wants to become a believer has to and must let Jesus cleanse him or her, wash us, die in our place, rise from the grave for us, and ascend into heaven to return only to take us back with him. No contribution from me at all. He does all. He is everything. We only get, get, and get. The gospel is such, I saw this online. This is Alistair Begg. If you were to die tonight and you were getting entry into heaven... What would you say? If you answer that, and I answer that in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing, loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he, because he. That's not only about initial salvation and justification alone, but our entire process of becoming more like him and being sanctified in him is a work that he does in each of us. This is why John 15 pictures our relationship with him as us abiding in the vine, where we get our vitality and our strength and our life, because apart from him, severed from him, we can do utterly Nothing. Discipleship, following Jesus, Christianity is more about what we get from him than what we can give to him. And Peter in these moments, and this is why we love him too, and refusing to be washed, Martha the same, they, they want to do more for Jesus, and that can come from somewhat of a noble heart. I mean, Peter makes promises like, even if all fall away, I will not. He is a guy who draws a sword to protect Jesus in that garden of Gethsemane when the mob comes to arrest him. She will clean and prep with urgency just to feed and take care of him and give to him rest. But so often it is that even the most well-intentioned follower of Jesus can so easily miss the entire point of following Jesus that we must receive from him before we can ever give, and that the gospel, the good news, is not about serving the Son of God first, but by being served by the Son of God. It's being in the posture to receive his grace and undeserved giving in which we are primarily, brothers and sisters, takers more than we are anything else. But it is very easy to become distracted from this main thing, and this heart, and this core, and this essence. 
and it's Martha here, and you can almost imagine her clanging the dishes all loud and vacuuming all violently, coming out and staring daggers at Mary with her hand on her hip. I'm doing all this work, trying to serve you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus, and I'm trying to prepare this for you and to help you relax and do this and that for you. And Mary over here, all she's doing is being served by you. Make her help me do something for you instead. And she's got it all backward and upside down. And then have you ever, when you try and wash a car, you start unrolling the hose and I tell the boys, turn the water on full blast, and you go back to the end of it, and, and nothing's coming out. You know something's wrong. There's, there's a kink somewhere. Something's blocking that flow because there's nothing coming out, and I think that's what's happening to Martha here. The text says in verse 40, but Martha was distracted by much serving. It's a kink in the hose. Martha is distracted by Martha. And what Martha does and what Martha says and when her eyes are upon this and that and what I need to do over here and over there and I got to prep for Jesus, this whom I love and this over there, that hose gets kinked and it slows down and it dries all up for even the best of us. And then even with what began with good intentions and a purity of worship that I want to give my all to Jesus and serve him with all my might, it can get really sour that rather than coming back to the foot of Christ. We can start to dwell on all these potential solutions as to why we're so burnt out and bitter and resentful and angry and easily irritated. And my marriage over here and my parenting is going like this. And the flow is just a trickle and we can put ourselves into this position where we're not the ones who are wrong, but everyone else is wrong. They are the ones who are the problem. Notice that Martha doesn't see any issue in herself. But what does she see? She sees an issue in everyone else, and Jesus included. It'd be one thing if Martha said, Jesus, I would love to sit at your feet too. I would love to do what Mary's doing, because I know that's the best place for me. But she actually doesn't believe this to be the case in this moment. Martha instead wants to pull Mary out of that place. And even boldly command Jesus to tell Mary to do so, so that Mary might become more like Martha. And so it's often the case that when the hose has this kink, that this is what happens, that we start to get really upset. And we're not even trying to come back to Christ's feet to eat and to drink and all that he has for us. But instead we play, spend our time replaying history, all the ways I'm being wronged. All the ways, I'm the noble one, the righteous one, and therefore the victim. And, and then we get into these modes of self-pity. And Martha's is such that she actually asks Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior who will die upon the cross for her sins. She actually asks Jesus, Lord, do you not care? Can you believe it? All Jesus does is care. But self-pity can be very powerful. And it's out of this self-pity that we can so easily breed a resentment in our hearts and our solutions become, and we really believe in them. If she would only, and if he would just do this, and my kids would be more like this, and my husband, my wife were like this, not that, my boss this, my friends were more blah, 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 and you start praying like that, change all the people around me, God. I don't know if you know the situation over here, Lord. And it's as if Jesus doesn't see what you can see. 
And if, if Jesus, if he only knew what you know, he would agree with you too. And this kind of bitterness and resentment really drives a wedge in our relationships with other people. And it drives a big wedge in our relationship with God himself. And it's often within the church that even those with the best of intentions and those who want to serve, they begin to become distracted and they sulk and spend hours in self-pity and then resentment is bred and self-righteous accusations are thrown around and we come to believe that the real solution to all of these issues is that other people really need to step it up more and be passionate about what I'm passionate about and they need to be less like them and they need to be a little bit more like me. But it's right here in the mirror of Martha, really the mirror of Scripture. Often it can be that we see our own reflection. And we're reminded the real issue is not this, nor is it that. But God is inviting us to where we need to return again and again and again. That these distractions have a way of making our minds go to all the places that are not the real core solution so much so that we forget altogether the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, to come back to his feet, and to sit there and drink in all that he has for us, and to know more and more by his word who he is, and therefore be changed. Now, this is not to deny the complexities of real life and many of It's problems, Um, marital issues are real, they can be severe, relational drama, financial strain, and whatnot, but underneath any solution must be a realization of what it is that matters most. It's our Lord and our Savior and our relationship and our fellowship with Christ. Many of us are are frantic and and distracted and worried and and busy and yet at the same time can't remember the last time we sat down with God's word open and everything else fading to black. Not in a checkmark kind of way, not in a I got to get through this Bible, through this year program kind of way, but to be like Mary, that nothing else in this moment matters except what Jesus has for me. I will worship I will adore, and every word he utters shall be stored in my memory, for faith sees the inner glory which dwells in him, so that we might be so overpowered with reverence and so wrapped in devout wonder that we become oblivious to all outward things, every syllable a pearl. If we find more and more ourselves to be distracted and easily irritated, and we're seeing less problems with this and more problems with everyone else, if we find that we're filled with frustration and even anger and dwelling upon solutions and shaking our fists at God in a sense because of the situation he put me in and all the ways other people are making it worse, I think it is that we have to come back to what is central and sit at the feet of Christ and come to him to receive and to get and to take and to live by everything that proceeds out of him. And so it is very easy to be distracted from the heart of discipleship and not even know it, and to lose our focus on what it is that matters most, and to be distracted like Martha, even in good things, even in serving Jesus, 
when we ought to first recognize the beauty of sitting at Christ's feet and taking in everything that we can from him. We continue in verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Notice here how Jesus defends those who have chosen the good portion, how he justifies those uh, who do prioritize him, and, and also how he gently brings back those who may have wandered away from that. Uh, first, look at how Jesus gently brings back Martha. You know, he doesn't meet anger with anger like so many of us can often do. There's a tenderness uh, in repeating Martha's name two times. Martha, Martha. And there's a mercy uh, because Jesus does understand how easy it is to become distracted. You know, busyness in our day and age has almost become this kind of virtue to brag about. You ask someone how they're doing, oh, I'm so busy. I have this and that and the kids this and that and I got to drive them here and over there. It's like I'm a chauffeur and work is ramped up because of job, blah, 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 and hobbies, et cetera, et cetera. It can be the case within the church as well. The ministry over here is this, and it's so demanding, and we got this for the summer, and this fall, and do, 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 that we can be very busy for Jesus and not even taken up by Jesus. And and Martha's distraction is actually serving Jesus. It's ministering to him, which is a good and a noble thing. But this is what often does distract us from the main thing. The good is often the enemy of the best. We will frequently not be deciding between abject sin and fellowship with God, but be deciding between good gifts and the giver of them. And over time, ever so subtly, our time with God can be easily squeezed into the margin and everything else giving greater priority, that this thing is so urgent, that this need is so pressing. If I don't do this, then everything else is going to fall apart. But if we take a step back, I think we'll realize more and more that so much of what is urgent is really, when all is said and done, relatively unnecessary. I mean, I don't even know what kind of food Martha made on this day, do you? I don't know if she was a widow or not. Or if she had hardwood floors? Probably not. I don't know her SAT score. I don't know if she scored the most points on that game. I don't know any of her hobbies, but there are so many distractions that keep us from seeing and dwelling on the beauty of Jesus as revealed in his word. Everything else is going to pass away. Everything else is going to be forgotten. I think for many of us here, myself included, we need to hear our Savior calling out our name two times so that we might come back to him. A big part of Christian discipleship is of course, saying no to sin, no doubt. But perhaps an even bigger part of it, a more crucial part of it, is also saying no to other good things which somehow have become in competition with him, which is the best thing. And we each and we all probably already know what some of those things are. Perhaps that could be a good discussion this evening. What are the things, both good and bad, that pushes our time with Christ into the margins? There are many things in this life which seem to be so important 
which seem to be so pressing, that seem to be so urgent, and more and more we can condition ourselves for spending a day at the field, spending two hours at the gym, uh, playing golf for half a day, watching a movie back-to-back. It's regular Netflix binging common, and yet the idea of spending a single hour with your Bible open and tunnel vision to Jesus is totally abnormal. We're preparing for worship together on Sunday. It's done with this leftover effort. I'll get to it when I get to it. And the gas tank is on E, and the hose is ganked, and detached from the vine, pick your image. It's so often in these moments we need to confess how our paradigms have become so off. And so Jesus is very gentle in bringing Martha back to him and pointing out all that she's distracted with and anxious about and troubled. But also notice how Jesus defends Mary here. You know, in this day and age, uh, normal rabbis, they don't let women sit at their feet because that's for the men. And I'm sure Jesus, uh, having women be equal learners alongside the disciples, rubbed a lot of Judaism's big wigs the wrong way. Mary could get some of that heat too and There's going to be others who want Mary to get up and help with the cooking, to do something more tangible, more practical than sitting at Jesus' feet, do something a little bit more concrete, a little bit more helpful than simple devotion to Jesus. You're going to spend that much of your day tuning everything out to be with your Savior. Isn't there something better and more productive that you could do with your time? And I think the ones who do want to spend a lot of quality time with Jesus are also going to get attacked from a variety of people who don't do the same. Because sadly, it's so very uncommon for God's people to do this. But notice how Jesus notices those who love to be with him. And Jesus defends them. And he recognizes them before all. These are the ones who have chosen the best portion, the one thing which is necessary or needful, the only one. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, only one thing is needful. How true that saying. The longer we live in the world, the more true it will appear. The nearer we come to the grave, the more thoroughly we shall assent to it. Health and money and lands and rank and honors and prosperity are all well in their way, but they cannot be called needful. Without them, thousands are happy in this world and reach glory in the world to come. The many things which men and women are continually struggling for are not really necessities. The grace of God, which brings salvation, is the one thing needful. Let this little sentence be continually before the eyes of our minds. Let it check us when we are ready to murmur at earthly trials. Let it strengthen us when we are tempted to deny our master on account of persecution. Let it caution us when we begin to think too much of the things of this world. Let it quicken us when we are disposed to look back like Lot's wife in all such seasons that the words of our Lord ring in our ears like a trumpet and bring us to a right mind. Only one thing is needful. If Christ is ours, then we have all and abound. And isn't it fitting that on Jesus' path to Jerusalem, with just a little bit more time with his people, that he impresses just one thing which is needful, to be at his feet constantly 
to take in everything that he has in his force, to be in fellowship with him. There is no shame from Jesus when we prioritize him so. There is no regret from his people when they do so. And when the end is near, I think, we're going to all look back on our lives and wish that we had given more of ourselves to him. Now, before we close, I don't think this passage means don't serve the church. I think we're supposed to have this heart of Mary, which flows into this industrious size of Martha. But there is an order, and there is a priority, and there's only one which is necessary and which is the very best portion. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, would you uh, bring us only by the Spirit's work to a place of honesty as we consider our own souls, as we examine what's within, would you make us a people who long to be at Christ's feet? Would you bring us to yourself, give us, God, we just want to be takers. We just want to be receivers of everything. Uh, Bring us close to you. Bring us close to Christ. Let us leave everything behind us. And would you give to us the clarity of mind and the joy that Mary has in this text. Help us, God, in wisdom to make the right decisions. Help us cut out even good things that compete with our affection to you. Show us more and more just the one thing which is necessary. And may Pillar Baptist Church be a place and a family where this is so to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.